Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I am Jonathan Strickland, and today joining me in the studio is Scott Benjamin, host of Car Stuff. Hello again. How are you, Scott? Great, and thank you again for asking me to uh, kind of do a guest spot on your show. I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we had some requests from our audience to cover a topic that I haven't really touched on in the past. is one about how technology is shaping agriculture. And uh, it's one of those things that, honestly, you know, I was amazed at how technology is rapidly changing the face of agriculture, because in my mind, it's one of those things that's been kind of set, technologically speaking, for decades. And it just shows how how ignorant I was of the whole thing. I had just a tiny bit of insight on this from our listener and our listening audience. Um, back in 2010, I think we did an episode about some of the some of the stuff that was happening back then. But even since 2010, there have been a lot of advances. But we have a few listeners in our audience that, um, you know, they're they're ranch hands or sure. they work on the farm and they listen to the podcast as they, uh, you know, or, or tilling the fields or whatever they're doing, mm-hmm. tending to the herd. And um, you know, they said, you know, what would be really interesting? And I don't think a lot of people know about this is just how advanced tractors are becoming, just how advanced um you know barns themselves are becoming it's not just oh, sure. it's not just the machinery it's also you know everything that goes around around uh growing or or um harvesting yeah or... harvesting and and yeah, you know, like maximum potential yields yep um all that has to do with uh with modern technology more or less now i guess um it's all becoming pushed far more into the future than you would ever think yeah and and it's interesting because we're at a time where we're seeing a decreasingly small percentage of the population being dedicated to the roles of ranching and farming, right? Sure. If you look at United States history, this is particularly true in the U.S., but you can see it in other places as well. Uh, if you look at the, the beginning of the 20th century, so around 1900 or so, mm-hmm. about half of the population of the United States were farmers. Hmm. And then you get to – and before that, it was even larger numbers um, percentage-wise – you know, obviously the population itself was smaller, but percentage wise, it was there were m- many more farmers. And what happened was this little thing called the Industrial Revolution. You probably heard that term, Scott. Once or twice. Yeah, I figured you might. Uh, so the Industrial Revolution actually meant the mechanization of lots of different industries, including agriculture. And so around 1900, your chief means of operating the various machines in agriculture were it was horsepower, literal Horsepower, actually mm-hmm. using horses. Actual horses. Yeah. And it wasn't until the 1920s, 1930s that tractors really started to get traction in agriculture. And then. Oh boy. I'm going to have to leave. I know. I'm sorry. It's, I've lost so many co-hosts this way. <laughs> actually, to be fair, Chris, Chris was way worse about puns than I was. He was. He was the pun, <laughs> pun king. Yeah. But, um, at any rate, uh, yeah, so, so you get to the 1950s, 1960s, those numbers start increasing, but as the mechanization increases, the number or the, the percentage of population that needs to be farmers or ranchers decreased because you didn't need that much labor, yeah. right? You, you were able to offload the labor to, to mechanization to some extent. Sure. Well, how many times have we heard in the past, I mean, in the past decade even, that very soon the world population is going to outpace the capability that we have to produce food for that population. Sure. And it's always, I mean, I've, I've heard this for a long, long time. It's not just 10 years, it's maybe 20, 30 years, or even even longer than that, probably. I just haven't been privy to that information. Right. But, but it always seems like they say the world's population will exceed the world's capacity to produce food by the year X. Right. And the year X is always about 20 years out. Right. Or 10 or 20 years out. Yeah. And, and it always seems like we always overcome that in some way. So in, and this is, I found this interesting. I found an article um, in The Guardian from 2014 that was talking about developing nations and uh, some innovations, some revolutionary farming innovations. Mm-hmm. And they said that in the last 50 years, agricultural production has actually tripled in the last 50 years. That's amazing. And, well, the thing is, you're saying that the number of farmers has gone down. Right. The number, uh, the amount of production has tripled in in the last 50 years. Right. So they're becoming more efficient. Mm -hmm. And every year that's a challenge for them to become more and more efficient with less and less uh, people, less and less 
property to do so because right. uh, you know the the farmland is at a premium right now. Sure. In a lot of countries, a lot of places that um, um, there there are severe government restrictions on the amount of space that you're allowed to use for mm-hmm. a farm. They're they're building structures, you know, so that they're building up instead of out. Right. Um, and that's a way to increase efficiency and and it really and productivity and and yields from their crops. No matter what it is, it's tomatoes, cucumbers, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these things they're they're even finding that building. Um, you know, a, here's the difference. Like instead of building a six foot roof or an eight foot roof on a greenhouse, if they put a 12 foot roof on a greenhouse, they can double production. And I think it was tomatoes and cucumbers. That's pretty fact. incredible. Yeah. So things like that, small things like that can make a big, big difference. And, you know, you're talking about the increase in population. Uh, the number you're going to find if you do some searches on this on Google, I think the number that's most frequently uh, cited is about uh, by 2050, we're looking at 9.2 billion people on Earth. Yeah, I have today's number, by the way. Okay. I looked at it just this morning. So as of today, it's about 7.3 billion people, and I watched the counter for a short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, there's a pretty interesting site called, um, it's called worldometers.info, mm-hmm. and it, it's just a world population clock, really. But you can watch all kinds of numbers as they go up and down, depending on what you're looking at. But uh, pretty fascinating. It's 7.3 billion as of now, but it's steadily clicking up. That's pretty. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's also a little sobering because once we hit 9.2 billion people, the other estimations say that at that point, by 2050, we will need to have impre- increased food production from today's standards by another 70 percent. Ah, OK. Question here, though. Yeah. All right. Here's here's uh, now I know the numbers are staggering. Sure. And if you look back at that, well, you look at that site that I was just talking about today, and I didn't write down all these numbers because it was just way too much. There's a mm-hmm. lot of information there, and it's it's all stats. It's a pretty fascinating site. But they said that in, in this is just to give you an idea, in, in 1970, there were roughly half as many people in the world as there are today. Mm-hmm. That means we've doubled since 1970. Right. That's a short amount of time. Now, they say that due to growth rate decreases, it'll take about 200 years for that population to double again. But then I look at that number and I think, well, how many people were there in 1970? There must have been um, roughly three and a half billion people. Mm-hmm. Ballpark. Yeah. Well, they're talking about going from, you know, seven and a half billion up to 15 billion people. That's why, because it's an additional seven and a half billion people instead of four billion people. That we're talking right. About. So right. maybe that's the reason. But still, uh, the disparity between the number of, you know, what is that, 45 years and you know, um, 200 years. Mm-hmm. That's that's an incredible amount of time. I mean, so how does all that factor in, too? I mean, there, there's so many numbers here at play that sure. I, I'm having a hard time figuring out where we stand as far as when the food's going to run out. Well, and it gets even more complicated than that, Scott, because also we're seeing more countries kind of emerge from developing to getting to developed status mm-hmm. as uh, as people become more affluent as they as middle classes begin to emerge in various populations one of the first markers of that is that people want access to a better diet that includes more variety of foods and a higher quality of those foods so not only are we going to need to increase production in order to meet the the needs of a growing population but we need to make sure that that is a varied approach not like well We'll just we'll just grow more rice or more grains of some sort. It has to actually be a variety of foods, which means that we have to start really looking at strategies um, for multiple reasons. And so I'm wondering, when you were doing your research here, when we were going into ag tech, did you come across the term precision agriculture? I did, yes. Now, I, I this did. is exciting stuff. I think it is. I mean, it, it really comes down to what you would call, I guess, a smart farm. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that's a term or if that's something I came up with or I came across it somewhere, but but it does seem to me like it, it's smart farming. It exactly. That's exactly right. But, I mean, it's just in the same way that you would think of a smart home. This is very apt. Yeah, but precision farming. I mean, that that, uh, that seems so odd because that's something that we never would have heard of maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Right. It, it just wasn't that way. It was uh, and it wasn't haphazard by any means. Right. It was just that it wasn't uh, to the to the inch precise as it is today. I mean, sure, the the uh, the farmer would till, till his road um, in 
his road, his field mm-hmm. in straight rows, and he would know that I can get roughly this amount of seeds in this row, and right. et cetera. But now we're down to planting to the very inch to get that maximum yield, and and to the very second, like not just not just in in distance, but in time as well. So, in ages past, you knew you planted in the spring and you would harvest in the fall, but with precision agriculture, it is not a joke to say you're going to want to plant on Wednesday. Like it, it, you can end up getting data that is so precise yeah. and it's dependent upon multiple factors, right? So we're talking about a lot of different technologies and processes that have to work for precision agriculture to work. So I'm just going to run down some of them. You need sensors. Those sensors are going to detect things like humidity, the moisture level in the in the soil, the actual acidity of the soil, the chemical composition. Uh, you want to have uh, other sensors that can detect uh, when plants need water. There's actually a sensor that um, is a leaf sensor. It attaches to a leaf and it measures the uh, change in voltage that happens when the leaf contracts. Now, a contracting leaf is an indicator that the plant needs water. Sure, it's wilting. Yeah, so you get, imagine you are a farmer and you get a alert on your smartphone that says you need to water the, the fields today because this is an early indicator that the plants are, in, are quote-unquote thirsty, you which know, is pretty incredible. I used to work in a nursery, mm-hmm. and, uh, and a, like a tree nursery, not not a baby nursery, but a tree nursery. And uh, you know, some of these hot summer days in July and August, I, I'll tell you how <sighs> we knew when we had to water is we looked at the field of trees, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the entire nursery and said, Huh, looks like they're a little wilted. We better throw some water on these plants. Right. And that's what we did. I mean, it was, it was just kind of seat of the pants stuff. And, and there's less and less seat of the pants farming going on now. It's more precise, as you said. And mm. those sensors, I mean, that you mentioned, it's not just that there's sensors and you have to go to a, a central location even to, to read or monitor those. You don't have to. It, right. You can. Some of them will send uh, mobile alerts to mm-hmm. the farmer uh, via smartphone. Yeah. There are all these, these systems now that you can, put in place at your farm that allows these sensors to interact with a network and alert you to minute changes so that you can make big decisions with the best technology, the best information available. Uh, other tech that you will see in precision agriculture includes satellites or drones. Mm-hmm. And these are specifically to monitor the, the status of crops throughout the year so that you can determine what the maturity level of the crops happens to be at any given point. Uh, you know, you want to harvest the crops at the right maturity level so that you, you minimize crop loss. Mm-hmm. Because obviously if you, if you go too early, then stuff isn't ripe yet. You're not going to be able to sell all the crops that you harvest. If you go too late, same sort of problem, except of course on the other side of it. So you want to be able to get the crops. You want to harvest them when it's absolutely at their peak. And uh, that way you maximize the yield, you minimize the loss. These are all different factors that go into the idea of precision agriculture. Meanwhile, on the on the software side, you have to have computer algorithms that are incredibly sophisticated so that they can crunch these numbers and make it meaningful information that farmers can act on. In other words, they provide information that can can build maps. Visual, visual representations of what your field looks like, what to, what the terrain you're talking about looks like, um, you know, where the hot spots are, uh, where the plants are growing their best, where they're not growing quite so well, what, mm-hmm. what the reasons could be behind that. They may analyze, uh, you know, why this, this one sector of the field isn't, uh, maybe producing as much as it possibly could. Right. Uh, versus this sector that's just 100 yards away yet is uh, is overproducing. It's producing more than they expected. And why is that? Maybe they can, uh, you know, learn something from that section or sector and uh, and incorporate that into next year's crop. Right. And, uh, you know, it's an excellent point you make because one thing we have to keep in mind is a lot of the farms in the United States. Okay, if you're looking at farms, uh, the overwhelming majority of farms in the U.S., are family owned and operated, mm-hmm. right? 90, like uh, in the 90, upper 90 percentile, only less than 5% of uh, farms in the United States are owned by non-family operated corporations. So uh, even though they're, they're huge. So we're talking about like Kraft would own a giant farm or something like right. that, you know, that they would, they would grow their own product. Yes. Uh, or Monsanto or, you know, there's tons of them, right? Sure. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, th- that only, that only accounts for, less than 5% of all the farms in the United States. Uh, however, the mid-sized farms are slowly getting edged out in the U.S. You've got a lot of small farms 
that are doing all right, particularly in markets where there's a high value placed on organic farming, that kind of thing, and localiz- localized farming. Uh, but it's mostly turning into really big farms and small farms, and the mid-sized farms are starting to get weeded out. But with those big farms, you can have a, such a huge farm that it is completely possible that one part of your land is getting adequate uh, moisture from a, a, a weather system moving through, and another part isn't. And this is the kind of technology, these sensors, uh, the, the, the drones and the satellite imagery are the kind of things that tell you, oh, the southern part of my farm is fine. That's the weather system came through, provide enough water, but the northern part is in need uh, of irrigating. So then you can irrigate just the parts of your farm that need it, saving water. It also means uh, that one of the important technologies with precision agriculture is incredibly accurate weather forecasting. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly important. And you can extrapolate this to ranching as well for yes. livestock and herds because, you know, there, there are enormous ranches in Texas and California. Montana. And Montana mm-hmm. that are, are the exact same thing you're talking about where uh, weather systems move through and only affect maybe the southern or southeastern corner of that of that ranch. Yeah. And it's very possible that, you know, uh, the ranchers might decide I'm going to move my my flock, my herd out of that region uh, in time to avoid that blizzard or that uh, that that horrific thunderstorm that's going to come through on Wednesday or, you know, whatever it happens right. to be. So ranchers uh, deal with a lot of the same things. And, of course, we're talking about food production still. So yep. it all kind of ties in. Can I say one more thing about drones before we move on? Please do. And in fact, maybe a little bit more than one thing, but of course, there's the obvious uses for them: mm-hmm. uh, monitoring crops. Yep. Um, you know, looking at uh, you know distant or remote locations that um, or are difficult to get to for a farmer, so that you know you can daily uh, fly a drone up the hillside and look at your uh, your coffee crop or whatever it happens to be. Um, sure. You know, uh, you know, people that use terraced uh, farms, you know, for space and and um, you know just irrigation. Capabilities, I guess, or you know, whatever, so that it's the, the most uh, optimal way to grow your crops. It mm-hmm. might be the the most difficult to also reach by foot, so sure. or by vehicle. Uh, drones kind of eliminate all that. And the other thing that is really really important is that um, drones are capable of delivering fertilizer and insecticide at precise locations. So you know, the maps that we just talked about with the software uh, programs that create maps and and show you exactly how crops are growing in certain regions or sectors, mm-hmm. you can precisely, accurately deliver the right amount of insecticides or, or pesticides or whatever happens to be that you need in that area to that just that one sector via a drone, you know, mm-hmm. that has a sprayer underneath. And whether we're talking about, you know, small helicopters or, um, you know, the, the quadcopters that sure. we see often, yeah, or, yeah. Know, kind of with eight, eight, um, what are the octocopters, rotors, I guess, yeah. Yeah, the rotors, um, they replace... Uh, you know, the guys that would fly in those crop dusters. Sure. And have you ever seen a crop duster in action? I have. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're, they are fascinating, aren't they? I mean, yeah, you see yeah. it, those guys are like daredevils. I mean, it's like the best um, um, air show stunt you've ever seen. When uh, you see them going really, I mean, remarkably low, <laughs> low altitude. Extreme, well, it's, it's startling if you're yeah. in, uh, let's say that you're driving through the Midwest. You're in mm-hmm. Indiana, Ohio, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, maybe 200, 300 yards ahead of you. You see an airplane buzz through that's low enough that it would strike a semi if there was a semi on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would, it's that low. It's going under wires. It's it's amazing. Uh, it's a it's a very dangerous profession. In fact, it, it often falls in the top ten dangerous professions list every mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, it's it's two or th- you know number two, three, four, somewhere in there behind. Uh, fishers, you know, anybody who's fishing, out, sure. you know, Alaskan fishermen or whatever. Well, yeah, that's why they call it deadliest catch. Yeah, and loggers. Loggers, <laughs> I think, are usually like number one and two between right. fishers and, and loggers. Right. And then uh, aircraft pilots. I think they kind of lump them in with um, airline pilots, you know, like um, passenger airlines. Sure. And uh, like bush pilots. Okay. Now, bush pilots and crop dusters likely account for most of the deaths in that field mm-hmm. because of the terrain that they fly and how low they fly. Right. The, the 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 conditions are inherently more risky. Exactly right. And wind farms now, uh, we haven't even talked about yeah, wind farming, yeah. but wind farming, uh, that is a, a huge danger for crop dusters. Sure. You know, for human crop dusters because they often strike those poles or strike the um, uh, the rotors, right. of course, you know, uh, because they're flying in these extremely fast, low Vehicles and their their focus, to be honest, is on the crops. It's not necessarily on uh, that new wind turbine post that's just been put up on within the last month or so, right? Or the fifty others that are in that field. So it can be very dangerous. And and 
I'm glad that you know some of these uh, some of these drones are able to cancel out the need for crop dusting pilots in some cases. Although it would be a, a pretty good adrenaline rush to do that. Yeah, uh, I don't know that I would need that much adrenaline rushed in me. Uh, but yes, I agree that it certainly would be. One. I think it'd be fun. It could be, I imagine. Uh, you know, other things to consider with this precision agriculture. I mean, there's tons more we could talk about. For example, uh, they often will even explain what sort of crops would grow best in different types of soil. And keep in mind, these crops all, you know, if there's one particular crop you're, you're planning on growing in part of your land, uh, the timing might be totally different to plant, like for, for the ideal setting, it might be totally different to plant those seeds than the next one, which means that you have to start taking other complicated planning into account. Like, how do you plant crops for one crop? Then let's say three more weeks would go by before you have to plant the next section. Mm-hmm. That'd be a totally different crop. How do you do that in a way that's not going to damage the crops you first planted? I have also seen where farmers have planted soybeans in between other crops. Now, I don't remember if it was uh, if it was cotton and soybeans or what it happened to be, mm-hmm. but it was like mixed crops in the same field. I yeah. That was unusual. So, so that's one way around it. And there's also... Um, I know from Indiana, again, I know that there's uh, uh, there's winter wheat that you can grow in the downtime. Mm-hmm. So, like, so let's say you've got a summer crop of corn or whatever it happens right. to be. You can also plant a crop of winter wheat that, that takes up the time uh, the rest of the year when you can't grow corn. Yeah. And so this will tell you exactly when to plant each one of those crops and when to when to bring it in. Right. Uh, fertilizer levels, that you, I mean, I guess soil levels that you need to, to watch for each crop, you know, whether it's it high or low. It would let you know when you would need to add fertilizer to those those fields as well, including telling you, hey, don't do it next week when when it would be ideal because there's going to be a storm the following day, which would just wash the fertilizer away. You're going to want to wait until that weather front moves through and then do it. Like this is really valuable. So it even goes to the transportation of food. I mean, we when we're talking about making sure you maximize your yield, that includes the time of after harvesting, but before you get it to wherever it's going to be sold. Obviously, the transportation can result in crop loss as well, uh, especially in areas that might not have a lot of developed roads like in Brazil. Brazil has a lot of roads that are dirt roads. So knowing that it's going to rain in a certain region, you might say, well, we're going to route all of our traffic. We're going to be proactive about this and take these other routes because otherwise trucks might get stuck in the mud and we might lose our crops because and of it. And it may take a day or two longer and it may cost a little bit more, but you're going to have a higher yield from that field than if it works that way. Yeah. I think that's the way I'm, I'm – Piecing this all together, I think that's right. Yeah, that, that yeah. every dollar that the farmer spends getting the crop or getting the crop to the market to be sold is just a dollar out of his, uh, you know, pocket. At Essentially, that point, at yeah. that point, I mean, he's trying to maximize profits as well as maximize the the, the yield of that product. Yes, as well. yeah. So there's, I mean, it, it's it's a really interesting and complicated picture. Like the more you look at, it, the more you realize, wow, I I I didn't appreciate. How complex this is. And of course, you know, keeping in mind things like you want to be able to rotate crops through your various fields in order to keep the soil healthy. If you just continuously grow the same crops on the same land, uh, that can start depleting nutrients in the soil. And so rotating that is really important. So this is the kind of stuff that gives the people who are cultivating the land way more information, like the, so that they can, they can do the best to have uh, great yields. They are minimizing the environmental impact of what they're doing, which is in their best interest in the long run as well. So it's, it's one of those things where the, the big data, the sensors, the, the automation, all of this stuff is coming together to really, uh, uh, maximize their effectiveness while minimizing their impact. And it benefits all of us. What if you take soil out of the mix, though? What if you do, uh, what, what if, uh, like just hydroponics? Yeah, hydroponics. I mean, that's been around since 1627, I found out. Wow, I didn't know it yeah. dated back that far. You know, you know <laughs> it's funny. The first time I encountered hydroponics was at, um, at Epcot Center. Yeah, I was just about to say, yeah. it had to be Epcot Center at the land. Yeah, that's right. The land is, you were driving through on a, uh, or riding through, I guess, on the, uh, on the boat. Yep. Um, and it's all, you know, hanging plants and, uh, they're watering them with a mist every, that, that's, uh, very, 
uh, particularly or specifically timed for that specific plant. You're just seeing uh, the roots of the plants. There's yeah. no soil at all. Um, there's also an, another kind of twist on this whole thing, and that's aquaponics. And mm-hmm. aquaponics is where they grow, um, well, I guess it's not just one thing. They can grow a number of different things, but it's plants and animals that grow in an ecosystem that is balanced so that there's no waste. Like um, I read where they're growing plants and fish in the same place, mm-hmm. and, and the result is that there's no wastewater, there's no um, insecticides used, anything like that. Um, it's, it's all um, one system that works together symbiotically. Nice. And the thing is that at the, at the end result is that you get organic produce and fresh toxin-free fish from the same from the same area, source, like yeah. The same sor- yeah, the same source, same building. You know, it's an interior thing that uh-huh. happens, or indoor thing. Um, but it's 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 pretty smart in the way they put it together. But I'm sure that takes years of planning. Oh, sure. Yeah, none of the solutions we're talking about are particularly simple to implement, right? They require a huge investment of both time and money. But, you know, everyone's got to eat. Yeah, <laughs> so sure. so ultimately, it's one of those things where you're, you say, well, we have to do this. I mean, it's not like we have the option. So we just have to find the best way to do it in a smart way. And what about the uh, the idea of shared knowledge now? Because that is something that, sure. that this is so important. I mean, the, the high-tech angle, I guess, is so important for farmers now because they can use uh, – they can use – forums. They can use uh, just simple text messages to other farmers down the road. I mean, it could be that easy. It yeah. It's a, usually a little bit more complex than that. It's groups or forums, as I mentioned, but um, shared knowledge. You know, they can share best practices. They can they can say, uh, you know what, I've never heard of that before, but, you know, we've got 500 people on this site. We can, together, we can come up with a solution. Right. Prior to, what, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. that was unheard of. Yeah. I mean, you might have a local gathering occasionally, uh, but even that would be of mostly small farm uh, operators. Yeah, and can I just say this, that I have never, ever met a farmer or rancher that I haven't found to be incredibly intelligent. Oh, yeah. I mean, they all seem just so smart, and it's and it's it's uh, it's like real-world smart. Yeah. You know, they, they just know so much about what they do, and it seems like they're just so in touch with with everything that they have to uh, – have to deal with. I mean, the whether it's the animals, the plants, um, just dealing with people. Sure. Um, it just seems like I've never ever met any farmer or rancher that isn't just uh, just top notch intelligent. Well, and, and and to put them all together in one place, that's a that's a great place to solve problems. Yeah, I I think of them very much like engineers. They they act as engineers. It's just they their training is through a different, you know, branch than traditional engineering happens to be. But they they are all about uh, looking at problems and solving them. And the tools we've talked about are all about uh, giving them even more agency to do that sort of thing. One other thing I wanted to to mention is that, uh, you know, I talked about how mechanization really started to cut down on the number as far as the percentage of population of farmers. We're going to see that continue, obviously, especially now that we are in an age of automation. We have gone beyond mechanization to automation to the point where sometimes we're talking about autonomous automation. It's not just that it's an automated system. It's one that is working without direct human guidance. We're starting to see that being introduced in various parts of agriculture. So one of the things I was looking at, I looked at some uh, robot harvesters, Mm -hmm. which are pretty awesome. There was one in particular that was designed to automatically trim lettuce. It was a lettuce trimming robot. Really? Yeah. It uh, used digital imaging to measure exactly where to trim, and it could trim 100 times faster than a human. That is fascinating. Yeah. So I know you wouldn't think it's fascinating, but to, to, but when you really think about what that is doing, what that what that is uh, what that machine is is capable of. Right. That's impressive. And from what I understand, they were able with that kind of technology to increase yield. By as much as 10%. Now, you're going 100 times faster, and you're thinking, how can you only do 10% yield increase? Yeah. Well, you still have to wait for the plants to grow. Oh, that's true. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I guess the, the waiting time would just yeah. be longer then. Yeah. It would be done with its job, and you're just waiting waiting for the harvest. Right. So you, you could end up having waves of, of yields coming across because, obviously, you want to be able to provide – uh, produce as as frequently throughout the year as possible, and you know here in the United States, we are incredibly fortunate to live in a in a country that is affluent and has relationships with other parts of the world where we can import a lot of vegetables, so that even in the dead of winter we can get access to stuff because it's being grown somewhere in the world. We can get access to stuff that 
probably is not growing in most of the United States at that time. And I know that there are ways that that they're increasing the speed that these uh, these uh, plants come to maturity. Yeah, as well. So, sure. Yeah. So I mean, they're 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 quickly developing that as well, so that instead of uh, being able to grow two to three crops a year, you might be able to grow you know five to six crops a year. Yeah. Yeah, and and you're able to maximize uh, your your field's use so that it's not laying fallow for long times of the year. It's it's pretty incredible. Other autom- automated uh, devices I have looked into uh, are automated planters. So these are planting vehicles that uh, I actually saw one in action on a video, and it was really interesting. So the video I watched had um, engineering students, uh, agricultural engineering students. Uh, who were working with various manufacturers who would provide them the the stuff that they would need to build out these automated devices. The automated planter, there's a guy behind the wheel. He starts driving it and he says, all right, I'm going to push this button. And he pushes the button inside the vehicle and then he takes his hands off the wheel and you see the wheel operating itself. And what was happening was the automated planter was working with a GPS device and a pre-generated satellite map of where the crops needed to go located by GPS coordinates. And it was literally following. It's like, like if you'd used Google maps to give yourself driving directions, it was essentially following driving directions, except in this case, it's planting directions. It's, it's inch precise. Yeah. Which is incredible because it knows how many seeds to put down per inch. It knows exactly where to go, exactly how many rows there should be. Yep. Amazing stuff. I have, I've seen a few of these things and it does just blow your mind when you realize how accurate they are and what they're, and the technology that they're using, you know, what they're using to be able to be that accurate. It's almost like it's more accurate than the farmer could be sitting in the vehicle, really. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're talking about uh, the capability of measuring down to fractions of an inch. And, you know, we as humans, we can do that, but it takes us, granted, a lot more time. Yeah, sure. And this this speeds things up considerably. I also saw uh, weeding robots because uh, – oh, right. I could use that at home. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, one of the best things about weeding robots is that obviously it would mean that you could cut down on herbicides. You wouldn't need to use as much herbicide to kill off weeds and preserve your crops. You could use a weeding robot to do it. Now – if you're if you're looking at a way of growing your crops and you don't want to use herbicides for whatever reason, maybe it affects your crops negatively. Hand weeding is pretty much your your big bet. And that means either you're literally pulling the weeds out by hand or you're using a hoe. Either way, it's backbreaking work. Yeah. It's slow and it's not efficient. It's not an efficient use of time and it requires a lot of labor. So weeding robots tend to be uh, something that you you tow behind another vehicle. So they are just automatically uh, looking for weeds. And by looking, I mean they're using cameras or infrared sensors, and they're using digital uh, image recognition software to tell the difference between a weed and a crop. And anything that's a weed's got to go. Mm. But there are even engineers working on building autonomous ones, like the Hortabot project in Denmark. That's an autonomous weeding robot now, right now, they're more popular in Europe than they are in the United States because in Europe, there are much stricter uh, regulations as far as the use of herbicides and pesticides are concerned. In the United States, those restrictions haven't reached that same level. So there's less incentive to invest in this other technology because we already have a, an infrastructure for pr- pesticides and herbicides. Uh, but assuming that that eventually changes, we'll probably see that migrate over here to the United States as well. And just the thought of having a robot out there taking care of all that without having to actually do it yourself is pretty, pretty awesome. I like that idea. Yeah. So, you know, the technology stands to really benefit us in lots of ways. Any others that you want to talk about before we transition to our our other kind of the dark side of technology and agriculture? You know, I've got a low tech version of what you were just talking about, that weeding machine. Yeah. It's going to come up. uh, How about at the end of the podcast, we'll talk about some farm hacks. That sounds great. And uh, again, low tech, but it's uh, it's an interesting development. Yeah, because part of the thing, like like we were saying, farmers, ranchers, they are the problem solvers. Yeah. Sometimes that means they come up with creative ways to use pre-existing technology in perhaps methods that weren't originally intended. Yeah, small scale, large scale, all scales, really. Yeah, but before we get into that, let's talk 
about tractors. Oh, boy. I'm excited so, about this. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know you would be, Scott, because it deals a lot with not just agriculture, but there is a lot of crossover to the automotive world and what we're going to talk about. So the the great side of, of this ag tech we've been talking about is that it can potentially very much increase uh, the efficiency of farms. It can end up decreasing the amount of work needed to do. However, there is a flip side to this. The flip side is as technology increases in sophistication, it becomes much more difficult to do any DIY maintenance, repair, tweaking, any of that. It gets harder and harder to do. And we're seeing that now, not just in these giant like cloud-based services we were talking about, but in tractors. Yeah, this is a, a great source of frustration among farmers today. Yeah. Is that the modern tractor is much like the automobile, nearly impossible to uh, diagnose and repair on your own, you know, in the, in the barn, in the field, wherever. Um, you know, days of, uh, you know, being able to use, as they said in this article from Wired, yeah. uh, using, you know, making a duct tape and bailing wire repair, uh, it's, it's becoming, you know, less and less possible for stuff like that to happen because now we're dealing with much more or many more um, electronic components, you know, modules that, that talk to each other on a, on a CAN bus system mm-hmm. um, that, you know, is controlled by one central computer. And in order to access that computer, you have to have uh, very specific diagnostic tools and right. connectors and um, uh, factory passwords that, you know, you just have no idea what those passwords are because they vary between make and model and different years. And um, it's becoming very, very complex for the common uh, modern farmer to be able to, and I don't mean common by the in a derogatory. Oh, way, sure, no, the average farmer, the average farmer to uh, be able to make uh, his machinery work in an optimal way as he could in the past. I mean, whether it's adjusting the timing on the tractor or uh, something's just out, out of calibration, mm-hmm. you need to reset that. Uh, it's becoming virtually impossible to do that without the proper tools, and these tools are very expensive. Or there's a flip side to this. Some of them even require a technician to be brought to the tractor right. to repair it because you can't just you can't drive it down to the dealership. You can't throw it on the on a on a trailer and haul it into town. Um, it's much more complex than this because we're talking about machines that are uh, two stories high, have yeah. twelve wheels. Uh, they are they are half a million dollar machines now. They're I mean, no joke. They're mm-hmm. half a million dollars in some cases. Uh, in this article we read um, on Wired again. I think they're talking about a mid-range tractor, yeah. And the mid-range yeah. tractors were, you know, somewhere above one hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So these are very, very expensive machines, and it could be incredibly frustrating for farmers to to realize that. Well, I, you know, we just talked about how important it is that you know you plant this this uh, this crop on noon or at noon on Wednesday. Yeah. Well, what happens when that machine goes down and you have to fly in a technician in order to repair that machine? Right, and it's and then 3 days have gone by and you still haven't planted anything. Yeah, and your and your tractor is still stuck in the middle of the field because uh you know some module is not communicating to another module, but you can't do anything about that until you get the technician there. And meanwhile, you're watching the estimations of your yield drop steadily. Yeah, uh, because you're getting those stupid smartphone alerts. That are saying, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, you're, you're really messing up this crop. They're, what like, are you doing? Hey, buddy, you need to get off your butt yeah, and start be, planning. Becoming, like, I more, can't. Like, becoming more and more, uh, you know, insulting as the day goes on. Right. So so just like like cars have their own little uh, control units, tractors, like you mentioned, have them. They, they tend to be called tractor engine control units or, or TECUs, TECUs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're they, they're also often proprietary, kind of like we've talked about proprietary connectors here on on tech stuff before. This is where you don't use a universal connector. You have very specific ones that work with that particular technology. And if you don't own that, and generally speaking, these are things that are not sold to the public, then you cannot get access. You cannot easily access the the uh, dev- the computer that's aboard the tractor. Uh, I talk about this all the time. Like, I remember, uh, I hate to shame any company, but I'm going to do it in this case. Uh, well, I mean, Apple is a great example. Apple's connectors are all proprietary to Apple, but Sony was very much the same way. I remember having a Sony camera, and it had a USB connector, but the end connector was proprietary. You couldn't just go out and buy a mini USB or micro USB and and 
use that, pair that with your Sony camera. Mm-hmm. You had to go out and buy a very expensive Sony one or try and find some off-brand knockoff that may or may not work with your camera. Well, imagine that frustration magnified to a $100,000 or more machine an investment, a significant investment that not only wasn't a significant investment, but your the success of your business depends upon it working. Yeah. And you can't even find out why it's no longer working. So the, the article talks about how there is the, the author talks about a farmer friend who had called the author out to check on the tractor. Right. The tractor was no longer working. There was a sensor that was burning out. And what they were trying to do is find a way to route the tractor systems around the sensor so that the tractor could at least be operational until the sensor could be replaced. Until there's a proper repair possible. Right. And the the issue that the author found was that the system was completely inaccessible. Uh, Not that it was physically inaccessible in the sense that there was no way to get to the computer, but there was no way to connect to it. So I guess in that sense, it's physically inaccessible. And it's all running on proprietary software. So there was no way to even see how the system works, let alone reroute anything. Now, this is a little different than cars because cars uh, recently, and and since I think 1996, have had the same diagnostic port underneath the steering wheel. Right. you You can... reach around under your car and feel it there. You probably had, you know, somebody at the local oil change place plug mm-hmm. into that just to get stats of your vehicle, you know, like the last time you were there. and Or you're going in for an emissions test or something. Exactly or... right. Yeah. So there are standards in automobiles, and, and that's not the case with these tractors. And and I have a feeling that in you know, the next decade or so, some of that's going to be ironed out, that, you know, there's going to be some, uh, some, some type of uniformity among uh, mm-hmm. tractor manufacturers that's going to... Um, help out just a little bit, but still, that doesn't really that doesn't help a whole lot because unless they conform to a standard um, um, software mm-hmm. uh, package, I guess that that operates all these, it's not going to do much good unless you have you know that as well, and they can still hang on to that unless part of this whole legislation thing includes that they have to use these uh, a certain like like a a, a standardized approach across the board yeah and i don't see that happening so i don't know maybe maybe i'm off base here maybe it's not going to be controlled the way the automobile industry is maybe it's going to be a little different maybe it'll be a little tougher but i also kind of think that (laughs) i don't know maybe this is not true that you tell me it seems like some of these systems are becoming so complex that farmers are beginning to kind of buck the system they're saying i don't necessarily want that $500,000 John Deere tractor, Right. I'm going to get this 1970 version of the same thing that really does everything that I need, but it's all mechanical. It's not electronic. That is absolutely happening. We're seeing the market for brand new tractors start to suffer while the market for pre-computerized tractors is, is blossoming. So in other words, this limited supply, <laughs> because, you know, that time's passed. Those, yeah. They're not really people making those anymore. Yeah, I don't think they're going to go totally back to that. I mean, no. I just mean maybe they need to back it down a little bit. But yeah. you're right. There, there's a now a market for the older equipment. Yeah. And it may even be that uh, it that could end up inspiring a change anyway where que- the questions come in like how, how much of this new technology that's being incorporated into tractors is uh, of, of real demonstrable benefit mm-hmm. – to the farmer or the rancher like oh. how how can can you show that this stuff that's supposed to make the tractor more efficient is it measurably more efficient because of these features all right but you know what I, because the features you mentioned features and i, I got to say this that but they're they are just like driving uh, like a, a luxury yacht or something mm-hmm. i don't know yacht maybe a, a luxury rv yeah um in a field they're incredible have you seen the interiors of these things i have not uh they're they're again like a story and a half high so you got a great view of your field yeah uh you've got leather wrapped steering wheels of course the seats are super cushy and they're on a, a suspension system almost like you'd find in a semi truck Something like that, very soft. Sure. Um, they've got air conditioning, of course. They've mm-hmm. got uh, CD players, DVD players. Of course, media inputs now. Not you know the CDs. I know they're gone. I right, right. You're giving me the scowl from across well, the you table. Know, but... I'm, I was thinking more of Bluetooth, but yeah. I was thinking, sure, whatever. <laughs> well, they have that too. Yeah. Uh, but of course, all the screens for the GPS systems mm-hmm. and everything. They've got autonomous features. So you can go autopilot. You can go semi-autonomous. You can go fully autonomous in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this is one one cool feature. I don't know if they can give this up. I, this would be tough to give up. Yeah. Let's say you're driving a, a grain harvester, mm-hmm. and we can all picture what that looks like. I mean, I think a lot of people call them combines. Sure. Right? But grain yep. harvester, combines, 
Same idea. They have that huge chute at the back that, mm-hmm. that just pours out corn or whatever it happens to be, wheat. Um, there's another vehicle that follows behind. It's usually a truck, but it's got a giant bin on it. It looks like a um, just a big box, mm-hmm. and it pours everything that it's harvesting into that box as it drives along. They drive along in tandem. Mm-hmm. There is a technology that they call follow me technology, and it what it does is it it completely automates the following vehicle, so no one has to drive that second vehicle. There's someone in there manning the harvester, the the uh, you know the vehicle that's that's gathering the material. Sure. But there's nobody in the box, in the one that just carries the box. So that way, it's always following at precisely the right distance, at the precisely the right speed. Yeah, whether the you know the um, operator adjusts that speed up or down doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Uh, that is always going to be exactly where it is. It's never. It's called follow me technology. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it eliminates at least one other person has to do that. They can do something else on the farm. And then I, I don't know if this is possible or not. But wouldn't it be cool if like when it's full. It could it could signal that you know okay we stop right right for now and they do that and then another one takes its place I don't know if that's possible yet or not it seems like it would be yeah swap out technology I would imagine that you could do that you would just have essentially uh, you know a designating clone one and clone two and then you just yeah could clone swap one return out. home clone two take its place clone two or clone one you know drop off the load and return to the field right. that kind of thing. It seems like it would be so cool if you had like this system of like three vehicles that were just continually operating. Yeah, because like, then you have minimum downtime. Yeah, very cool. I mean, yeah. so there's some really interesting stuff that goes along with it, but I got to say that you know some of this is really kind of rubbing me the wrong way, and that you know, sure, I think it would. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I I felt the frustration of the you know opening the hood and not being able to do anything with my own car. Right. I can't imagine what it's like if you've got a five hundred thousand dollar machine that you have to have running by Wednesday. At noon, specifically, mm-hmm. <laughs> to plant that field, and it's not operating, and there's nothing you can do about it except fly a guy in from Utah to uh, to fix it in the field, and even then, you know, you got to pay for his ticket to come there. You got to right. pay for the repair itself, which is not going to be cheap. You got to um, hope that whatever the repair is works yeah, and, and that it, it's sustained, because yeah. I've read stories about guys who would fly out. Uh, mechanics to come and, or actually, I guess technicians, it goes beyond mechanic because you're actually having to use the, the, uh, authorized proprietary approach to even access the systems on board the vehicle. And you end up doing some work and then the person leaves and your vehicle works for a little while and then breaks down again. And then you think, well, I can't, this, this isn't something sustainable. I can't keep doing this. Can't keep that cycle going. So what are you going to do? Are you going to just let that thing sit in the barn and collect dust? Or are you going to get a, a tractor from 25 years ago that works every day and you know how to repair it? Right. It may not have, it, it certainly doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but if it works and you can keep it in working condition, that's a very powerful story. Yeah. We talk about in, in the tech sphere, we talk about this approach, this, uh, this trend really, and it's across all areas of electronics as the black box trend. And a black box essentially means any system or group of systems that is either sufficiently complex enough or is protected against you accessing it. So, uh, meaning that, you know, in the old days, the really like the, the birth of the personal computer age, people were hacking like physically hacking machines to make them do all sorts of stuff, right? Um, and as they get more and more sophisticated, it's harder to do that, either because it's just so complicated that it's rare for any one person to understand all the systems that are involved, or companies have gone to great lengths to keep certain components completely shielded from you tweaking them. Yeah, so you own the physical machine itself. You own the engine, you own the transmission, you own the wheels, the axles, all that, the chassis. Mm-hmm. However, the company, the uh, you know the, the the parent company yeah. owns the software that makes your machine operate. So you're in, you're really stuck there. You're you're essentially driving a black box. Yeah, and it means that you have to if you if you ever have to do any maintenance or repair, uh you pretty much have very few options open to you other than contacting an official uh person from that company to come and perform the maintenance and repair. Uh, this has actually led to uh, a, a lot of people kind of lumping in agricultural technology under the Right to Repair Act, which really is not a single act. It's actually lots of different legislation 
introduced in many different states and not just singly focused on agriculture. In fact, the main focus was automotive. The idea being that a person who purchases a vehicle should have the expectation that they could do repairs themselves or take that vehicle to an independent mechanic who also could do those repairs other instead of having to be forced to take them to the the source the manufacturer yeah that's the uh, that's the point behind it if you do want to do repairs yourself if you are absolutely determined that you're going to do those repairs that maintenance yourself you're going to go to whatever links necessary in order to do that. What you would have to do is get hold of a computer and some software and a connector that works with that particular make and model of that vehicle. Yeah. And you'd have to be doing it essentially illegally. Yeah. And there's also because this is a piracy issue, right? Yeah. And there's also the uh, the issue of the password, the manufacturer yes. provided password now. That's something that they hold uh, pretty close to their chest. I mean, that's something that – but, of course, if you've already got the software loaded onto a laptop, you've yep. likely already got the – you know, somebody with the password as well. Uh, we're talking about a gray market here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. There's a gray market for machines that have that software loaded onto it already so that if you if you want to try and do these kind of uh, – you know, at least diagnose what's wrong with the – you know, you might not even know yet, you know, and it may be something very simple – and a lack of knowledge is terrible, right, for anybody because you are completely dependent upon what someone else says. You feel helpless. Yeah. And you don't necessarily know if you're someone like I'm not a car guy, Scott. If I take my wife's vehicle into a mechanic and he says, oh, problem is your hobbit fell off your unicorn. I'd be like, I don't think that sounds right, but I don't know. Yeah. So I guess I got to pay you this $10,000. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I feel a lot of people are in that position. Uh, if you just if you don't have the the uh, the knowledge ahead of time when you come in mm. of what it possibly could be, yeah, uh, you feel like you might be taken, yeah, and and that is a another source of frustration is that you're at the mercy of the manufacturer at that point because they can tell you anything and you'd say, well, okay, here's the manufacturer telling me that's what it is, it has to be that, and and a lot of people are just like, well, I'd rather I'd rather know that find that out for myself, you know, or maybe narrow it down to three possible things, and if they tell me one of those three things. I'll believe it. If they say something, you know, from out in left field, uh, then I'm going to question that. And right. Ask them why. I'm going to follow up with them. Yeah. But it, it's just easier to accept if you do that research ahead of time. And the problem is that uh, if you want to access the tractor's computer, uh, you are essentially breaking the law because the Digital Millennial Copyright Act specifically uh, makes it illegal to try to get around or break protection around any sort of DRM. Now, typically, we think of DRM as something that happens to be attached to a music file or a computer file, not a tractor. But the principle is the same. And while I'm not necessarily – I don't know that we're going to live in a world where John Deere is going to sue a farmer because the farmer chose to get around – the. The point is, under the law, they would be completely within their right to do that because the DMCA uh, allows for it. And that's why the Right to Repair Act, this this group, these various uh, uh, elements of legislation that are in different stages, uh, only Massachusetts, I think, has actually passed a Right to Repair Act into law. Uh, but what that says is that it should they should get an exception essentially to DMCA that that in order to do repairs on something uh it should not be considered illegal to bypass this protection because it it means that you have created kind of a almost like a monopoly like you you have created only one means of addressing the problem and it also means that people who are like you know independent mechanics who do not work for any specific manufacturer or, or dealership or whatever they're seeing their business decline because if more and more of the vehicles have to be taken to those dealerships or individual or manufacturers, then the mechanics don't they don't they aren't getting as much work. Sure, less and less need for the older equipment to be repaired. Right, uh, unless they start to turn towards using that old right, equipment, then exactly. their business is going to flourish again. And yeah, can I can I just say that we're we're not picking on John Deere. No, it's just an easy example for us yeah. to make that everybody is familiar with. But all of the modern 
uh, tractor manufacturers are doing similar things. Yes. So it's not like, you know, John Deere's, you know, some evil corporation doing this on their own, and that's the only one that's like that. And to get their equipment, you have to submit to this. It's it's everybody. And and these companies have, you know, very uh, understandable reasons for pursuing this sort of stuff, too. It's not like their motives are – they're not all snidely whiplash. No. They're not twirling their mustaches as the train is coming down no, the tracks. No, but, but don't you agree, though, that – if they wanted to make it easier on the on the ordinary farmer, that they yeah. would on the on the on the average farmer, that they would maybe not make it password encrypted. You know, I think that, I think what I, I my own personal opinion is that they could throw in a simple device that hooks up to the tractor and gives a readout of exactly what's wrong. Maybe just a diagnostic tool, but maybe, yeah, maybe something that's uh, oh boy, you know, what level do you allow it to go to though? Because you start allowing everybody to recalibrate your machines. There's going to be problems, and they're going to blame the manufacturer. That's so, true too. So, how would you how would you ever determine what level you would allow them to fix or repair their own machine versus sure. this is a factory repair? This is something that we have to do. Right, and and when you are getting into this level of sophistication and complexity, it is not an easy question to answer, right? No. Because uh, some people, you know, you might say, "All right, well, here are all the basic mechanical systems that we think." People should reasonably be expected to be able to address. Here are some of the ones that we think are beyond the pale when it comes to the average person's ability to access it and and change it. The problem is then make sure that the ones that you can't touch essentially aren't also going to completely shut down the vehicle should they go bad. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult there's there's so many possibilities here that i i don't know what the answer is i yeah. really don't but it but it does seem to me that if they would at least allow them access to to look into the tc tecu and figure out what's going on at least mm-hmm. to, at least to understand all right the problem is with uh this hydraulic sensor over here on this right. on, on my number eight wheel or however they designate that mm-hmm. um then they would at least know okay that's where i'm going to look and that's where the problem is going to be and they'd know um, it just gives you a, a better, a better feeling, sense of what's going on. I, I guess. Well, I mean, no, no, I, I agree. I think, I think being ignorant of the situation just adds to stress. Yeah. Instead of just calling the manufacturer and saying, well, my tractor doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, then you would at least say like, well, I'm having a problem with my, uh, my number eight wheel, the hydraulic sensor yeah. is doing this, yeah. but you can't even do that now. And no. that's the problem. So, yeah. Super frustrating on both sides. Right? Now, one thing that's not frustrating, the thing that we wanted to kind of conclude with, is that some farmers have found really creative means to uh, boosting their efficiency by taking matters into their own hands, by actually hacking uh, either systems or or uh, tools in order to get more efficient. And Scott, you looked into this sort of stuff. Yes, I did. There's a site called Farm Hacks. Now, Farm Hacks kind of came about when I was reading about the gray market and um, you know, some of the uh, software uh, proprietary stuff that you're talking about, like maybe a friend of a friend has a laptop that you could use that right. has the software and the passwords. Well, they said, well, there, there are sites out there that can help you with some problems, not all problems like that. But uh, look into Farm Hacks. And there's a, a site called farmhack.org. And I can just give you a few examples, just quick examples. Mm-hmm. But there's probably, I don't know, maybe 200 examples on this site so far of just really simple things. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's, it, they're not all high tech either. Um, some of them are, are, you know, large grand scale projects and others are, are very, very small, like made in a five gallon bucket type small. Wow. So really, really small. Like let's say they got a problem of, um, uh, I don't know, the, uh, the, the metal, uh, pan that you put the chicken's water in, in uh-huh. your, on your small farm, it keeps freezing in the winter time. But the solutions that are out there, uh, you know, in a, um, I guess in the consumer uh, realm are, you know, a $200 heater for this thing. And you don't mm-hmm. want to pay 200 bucks for that. You just got a small farm. You got 10 chickens to take care of or 20 chickens. Yeah. What do you do? You want the, you want the $5 solution. So, you know, you go to this farm hack site mm-hmm. and they've got a solution there for you. And it's things like that. So um, one thing that we mentioned earlier was the, uh, the automatic weeding machine, the robotic weeding machine. Yeah. Well, here's an idea that uh, this one at farm, farm hacks had. And they're called farm bikes. And there's a bunch of different types of farm bikes. But one of them that really caught my eye was the type that uh, riders lie face down just above the ground. So you're you're kind of on a um, almost like in a sling. Okay. Just above the ground. Kind of uh, maybe a little less than arm's length. Uh-huh. And 
big wheels that go down the the, uh, the rows, you know, where there, there aren't plants. Right. And you you pedal this with your feet behind you, so it's like a reverse recumbent bike almost. You're you're laying head first. So you're like you're like flying over the weeds like Superman. Yes. Picking weeds. Yes. And there's buckets hanging next to you, and you can pick them, and it's very very simple. And you can have two people, three people, however big you want to make this device, you know, this this thing, and. Again, it's foot-powered, you know, it's pedal-powered. It's just like a bicycle. It's just a, a reworked bike, really. So it's a very low-tech version of the automated weeding machine that you talked about. It was only it's not automated. It's human-powered, and and humans are, are suspended there doing that. But it's, it's a weird thing to look at, but it is it is so smart when you look at it. You realize, like, that that's the way to pick weeds. I kind of want to try that just to try it now. It, it sounds fun. <laughs> I'd almost like to ride it fast on the street and yeah. see what that feels well, like. Well, I think too. is that you would, you would imagine that, uh, that your ability to maneuver is probably somewhat <laughs> limited, seeing as how it was designed to go straight down rows. I think it's mostly straight. It, it, the turning is a little suspect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, so there's a few, and we'll just kind of uh, – let's quickly go through these. Sure. We're nearing the end here. But, um, of course, there's a lot of 3D printed parts. Yes. Uh, on, on the site. And that's interesting because, you know, I know you've talked about them many times. Mm-hmm. We've talked about them on car stuff. Um, we're talking about things like seed rollers or spray nozzles, any any non-electric tractor part, maybe. Sure. Uh, farm, you know, any any implement part that you can think of. You could you could do a 3D printed part for that. Um, how about this homemade livestock scales for about a third of the price? It's something you don't really think about. You have to weigh those cattle before they go in the truck to the to the market. Sure. How do you do that? Well, you have to buy a scale, and the scale can be, you know, thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. maybe two thousand dollars for one. If you could do the same thing, if you can create your own for about a third of the price, of course you're going to do that. So why not? And it's just as effective. Huh. Um, how about uh, let's see, quick attachments. Uh, you know, ideas for quick attachment um, for things that require like maybe a three-point hitch. Mm-hmm. You know, very difficult to line up and get it get it correct, but. Uh, just simple ways around that, you know, things that uh, that that speed up your time, that that maximize efficiency. It's like a plug and play approach. Well, it's very very similar. You're exactly right. <laughs> um, okay, so we talked about um, mobile temperature alarms and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of program or apps out there, I guess, that are not advertised on the site, but people are saying, "I use this one; it really works." So mm-hmm. you can go there and kind of again, this is back to the. Um, the shared ideas, the right. uh, the community aspect the, of the, this. The collective expertise. Yeah, I mean, that way, you know, if your greenhouse gets above or below temperature, uh, you're alerted no matter where you are. If you're in town buying feed for the livestock mm-hmm. or whatever, you know that the greenhouse is getting a little too hot. i got to get back there and set that. Or you can, man- or you know, maybe it could be an automated system. Sure, course. yeah. Uh, so what about if, um, again, I mentioned the five-gallon bucket thing, but um, humidifiers for small buildings mm-hmm. in barns or whatever, you know, that's a, that's a simple thing to do. There's... Uh, bucket-based humidifiers that you can make uh, that, that are continually refill themselves, so it's a, a self-sustaining system. That's really cool. It's very smart, and it's there on that site. Um, also, compost sensors, again, for recording temperatures inside the compost piles. And you wouldn't think that's important, but some of those compost piles can self-combust. They, yeah. can, they can spontaneously combust because they get to incredible temperatures. I've yeah. seen piles of mulch and dirt and things that are, that are steaming in the winter right? Uh, because they get so high, you have to go out and, and turn them in yes. order to keep them cooler. They'll, they'll just burn up. Yep. Uh, compost is the exact same way. What about biodiesel, uh, biodiesel processing trailers? Oh, we talked about biodiesel quite a few times on text. I'm also on forward thinking. Biodiesel is pretty cool stuff. You, uh, you can uh, essentially use that in place of diesel. Some diesel engines take it like you could have pure biodiesel. Some diesel engines will process it just fine. There are other ones where you've got to have more of a mix between diesel and biodiesel. But so this is this is something that you could use. Well, like, this is like a self-contained trailer. So you've got a, a biodiesel processing. Um, I, I'll call it a plant, but it's smaller than that. It's yeah. a, it's a biodiesel processing um, uh, system, uh-huh. and it's it's a way to house that in a trailer safely. And to be able to use your product, your your waste products, whatever that happens to be. So whatever you farm, you're able to use the uh, the corn husks or whatever right. to create the your stalks, own biodiesel or, kind of or algae or whatever you have access to to be able to create your own fuel for your own farm. So it's a very smart thing to do. Yeah, I mean, otherwise you've got the stuff that would just be waste that you know you might be able to find one or two other uses for it. But reuse of this stuff, making use of as much of the crop as possible is another means of, of reducing environmental impact and increasing efficiency. Cutting your fuel costs at the same time. Yeah. Very, very important for farmers. So 
things like pedal powered root washers uh, for like things like carrots and, and potatoes. And, yeah. You know, just small stuff like this that you wouldn't think of. But, you know, for somebody who is just going to, uh, you know, maybe uh, harvest a small area that's, mm-hmm. you know, a couple hundred feet and they want to take it into a local farmer's market or something, they got to find some way to wash that before they bring it into town. And that can be a very time consuming process. Sure. So, so these pedal powered root washers that are very effective, very efficient, um, smart design, you know, just use an old bicycle and a, and a, a tub of some kind. Yeah, I've actually, um, I've actually seen an, an entire, uh, uh, non-profit startup that does this very thing. It, they take bicycles and they repurpose the bicycles into pedal powered machinery. Much, many of, many of them are dedicated toward farming. And they end up uh, bringing them to places where electricity isn't even always a part of life. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing this in uh, developing nations where it's really improving people's ability to do more work with less effort, even in the absence of electricity. So agriculture, they could use it to power a radio. They mm-hmm. could use it to do, uh, just just about anything. Really. Yeah, I mean, power um, something that cooks. I mean, you know, it's yep. just, uh, amazing. I saw one that was it. a pedal powered blender. <laughs> I think you'd go ahead and make your mixed drinks right there. That's pretty good. I could use that this weekend. Yeah. Oh man. So let's just talk for a second about how hot it is in Atlanta. <laughs> oh yes, no kidding. The farmers have got to be really feeling the heat right now. Oh too. yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I know that affects them because it's not every day. That when you know the temperatures are in the 100 degree range, right, and humid like this, yes, it's got its own. The heat set. index is around 120 you know, some days. It's got its own set of circumstances that go along with it. And, yeah, and I don't, I don't have any idea what that does to farmers, but I'm, I'm sure that it just drives them crazy because you never know when it's coming. It's right. coming, but you don't know what week that's going to hit. Yeah, yeah. So this has been a really fun topic to talk about. This, this is again one of those things where. I hadn't really lent it much thought. I really should. I've got a cousin who is um, very much in this world. He and does incredible work. He flies all over the world working with farmers to help increase crop yields. I should talk with him and see what other interesting technologies are on the horizon oh. because – He's awesome. Well, what am I doing on the other side of the table here? <laughs> should have been talking with that guy. Well, he's in Tokyo. It's oh, kind of okay. hard to touch base with him. <laughs> I mean, uh, I know a little bit, but he knows a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows better than to come onto a podcast with me because uh, because uh, <laughs> we're related. So uh, at any rate, this thing, Scott, thank you so much for coming onto the show to talk to me about this. And oh, well, uh, thanks for having me again. I, I appreciate it. It's always fun to do a guest spot. Yeah, like it. and it was just great to to really look into you know the ways that this world overlaps with the automotive world, as well as the frustrations, as well as not just the frustrations, but the the incredible potential this technology has to to help farmers in the future. So, really exciting stuff. I mean, uh, anytime I can talk about drones uh, in a way that is is positive, I am happy to do it. So, guys, if you have any suggestions out there for a future episode of Tech Stuff, you can write in the email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle is techstuffhsw. You can catch Scott on Car Stuff. Uh, along with Ben Bolin, who is also a frequent guest host here on Tech Stuff. You guys cover all things cars and vehicle related, really. Uh, any interesting shows coming up in the near future? Oh, man. Anything and everything. As soon as we cover anything and we talked about Elvis's purse recently. Wow. Uh, we we're going to talk about um, a local auto manufacturer that most people don't really know about, Panos. Okay. Um, oh, just a lot of different things. We do a lot of history on our show, too. Yeah, it's awesome. You can really learn a lot about some of the the brands that have become either either have come and gone or are mainstays on the road now, and you can learn all about them. Just check out Car Stuff. It's a great show. And uh, I will talk to you guys again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 